Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Welcome all. This is the Ogletree Deacons Third Thursday podcast, but as you may have noticed, this is not a third Thursday of any month. But as I mentioned in the March podcast, with the pace of change at the NLRB, we're likely going to start having some mid-month installments of the Ogletree Third Thursday, and this is the first one of 2023. And if you listen to the March Third Thursday, I told you what this one was coming. It's a very high profile and a very interesting uh, topic. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the NLRB's recent decision in a case called McLaren McComb. You've probably all heard it, uh, but this case deals specifically with severance agreements and primarily confidentiality and non-disparagement provisions uh, in those severance agreements. But uh, although, as you will hear shortly, the principles are not likely just limited to severance agreements and the test The analytical framework that they established in the McLaren-McComb decision is likely a prelude to other decisions the board will be issuing soon, like Stericycle, and get ready to start reviewing uh, all your workplace policies. Look, this case has probably drawn more interest uh, than any NLRB case I can remember from a broader set of management representatives and, frankly, from a broader set of Ogletree uh, firm lawyers than is typical with NLRB decisions. I'm confident you've heard of it. Most of you have spent time reading it. We're going to try and help you understand it today. And if you've uh, joined any of the firm's webinars on this, my guest is, you heard my guest speaker today, Tom Stanick. Tom, how are you, my friend? I'm doing just great, Tom. Thank you. Good. Glad to have you here. Tom's a shareholder in the Ogletree Phoenix office, co-chair with me of our firm's traditional labor practice group. And let me tell you, he's dissected this case and a lot of other related authority. He's dissected the general counsel's guidance memo, such that it is that came out subsequently. And seriously, he spent an incredible amount of time helping clients, helping our other lawyers uh, understand what the thinking around this case is. So you'll want to listen to to what he's about to to say. So Tom, give us a quick overview of what this case involves and what the holding uh, is. You bet. So I'll echo a first comment that you made there, Tom, that uh, it's a really exciting time to be a labor attorney. Um, This case really has created a larger splash than I think any recent decision we've experienced from the NLRB. So uh, this case actually originates from a healthcare provider, a hospital in Michigan, where there was a reduction of force as a result of the pandemic. And in conjunction with that reduction, there were some separation or severance agreements provided to some of the impacted employees. Interestingly, and this might be the situation where, you know, bad facts might make bad law, but we'll let the audience decide if they agree with that comment in just a minute. Interestingly, this group of employees had recently unionized and that complicated the employer's options when it came to the reduction of force and certainly as related to giving notice and opportunity to bargain to the employee's legal representative. So what happened is the employer here gave these separation agreements to these uh, 11 individual employees without giving notice to the union in advance. And the employees here actually signed these agreements and they accepted the severance payments 
that were provided in conjunction with that. There were two key provisions that the board took issue with. The first was a confidentiality restriction, and then the second was a non-disclosure restriction. But the non-disclosure restriction is actually a bit of a misnomer. It's really more of a non-disparagement restriction. The confidentiality restriction read very similar to what a lot of employers have in their agreements. And that is something to the effect of that the agreement itself would be held in confidence and that the employees would not discuss the terms or provisions of the severance agreement with others, uh, other than, for example, tax attorneys, their spouses or significant others, family members, et cetera, as long as those other individuals agreed to maintain the confidentiality of the agreement. Now, the non-disclosure provision, again, as I said, as in the case, it's titled non-disclosure, but it's a bit of a misnomer. It really focused on non-disparagement. And what that provision uh, required the employees to do is not disparage or harm the image of the employer in that case by making negative comments uh, about the company or about its officers, directors, employees, or agents. This case now, at this point, should have probably faded off into the sunset. But as I said, bad facts making bad law, the union here kind of made a, uh, it interjected itself into the situation by suggesting that the company went outside of its authority to essentially provide these employees these agreements without first talking to the union and negotiating the terms of the severance. So the union filed a ULP charge, an unfair labor practice charge with the NLRB. And at that point, this case then took off. And this case, interestingly enough, I know in February when it was issued on the 21st, not many of us in the labor world were expecting this to come about because it was not one of the cases that the NLRB issued a press release on. In fact, there were larger cases, as you suggested, Tom, Stericycle. There was another case regarding confidentiality and arbitration agreements. So there were other cases that are on the docket of the board that actually I feel the board may have prioritized a bit more. But this case came out on the 21st, and it made a giant splash because what it found is not just this what we'll say unique to the union relationship issue there where there was a violation, where there was a a unilateral change or a failure to negotiate with the union about the severance agreement. But the big splash for all employers in the private sector around the country is that the board here found that the confidentiality of the agreement, as well as the non-disparagement provisions in the severance agreement, went too far. So let me jump in there. Confidentiality and non-disparagement in the context of a severance agreement, that, that's what this case is about. But does the holding, you think, is it restricted to those two concepts in the context of a severance agreement only, or does it have impact beyond that? Looking back over the last few decades, I would be very surprised if this holding in McLaren-McComb was limited to the severance context. It seems as though from the principles and policies that the board emphasized in that case and the interests of the board in not just employee uh, Section 7 rights, but actually in the public's interest as it relates to national labor policy, I would be stunned if this decision was somehow limited to the severance context. And in fact, the general counsel's memo that I know we're going to speak about that issued last week, general counsel's memo 23-05, indicates that it is not intended to be limited to simply the severance context, that when it comes from the employment relationship, it really is a soup to nuts offer letter all the way through the post-employment employment employment agreements like severance or separation agreements that employees may enter into 
those are all going to be within the purview of the board's review. And I feel that the principles that we have seen from the board as of the McLaren-McComb decision will apply in all of those different contexts. So the focus is really more on confidentiality and non-disparagement as opposed to severance agreements. So let me ask this. Does the case in its uh, new test apply to all employees? So it does not apply to all employees as employers use that term. Uh, It applies to all employees for labor practitioners And when we use the word employee, it's a term of art under the National Labor Relations Act. And it is really intended for non-supervisory, non-managerial employees. So the NLRA has 12 indicia of supervisory status that basically exempts individuals with that supervisory status from the NLRA's protections, including the Section 7 rights that were implicated in McLaren-McComb, as well as managerial employees that may not necessarily supervise individuals directly but are involved in high-level company um, decision-making and business decisions and strategies and issues that affect the enterprise. This decision also does not impact independent contractors, but we do know there's at least a decision at the NLRB pending regarding the classification of independent contractors. And we are aware that this board and the general counsel are inclined to try to broaden Section 7 rights and more narrowly tailor the scope of individuals that may actually qualify for independent contractor status. So for people not covered by the act, we can draft confidentiality and non-disparagement as usual. But if you're a statutory employee, that's who this is impacting. So so does it mean we can't have confidentiality or non-disparagement for those employees who have Section 7 rights? I don't think that's what it necessarily means. What I think it means is they need to be narrowly tailored if we have such provisions And what we know now from the guidance from the general counsel, and again, the general counsel's memo from last week, it's not board law. It is her interpretation and her expectations on what the regional offices of the NLRB, who report to her, will follow. And what I think she essentially provided to the regions is an expectation that confidentiality of agreement language. So in the non-supervisory, non-managerial employee severance agreement, what she's expecting the regions to do is to review those agreements if they ever see them and determine whether or not confidentiality may go farther than necessary to protect very narrow interests. Um, She did allude to some particular resolutions within the NLRB, which are called non-board settlements that might have financial term confidentiality. There is some I'd say confusion and probably a debate that will go on until the general counsel provides additional guidance on uh, whether or not that applies beyond the scope of settlement agreements that actually apply to agreements outside of the NLRB's jurisdiction in meaning that ULP charges are going to filed. She also, though, did say confidentiality. And the board, I believe, held this as well, because as I said, there was that non-disclosure provision that was not touched by the board and McLaren-McComb, where non-disclosure would be confidentiality of sensitive proprietary trade secret information of the employer. There's going to be a debate, I think, that continues as it relates to how those terms are defined. Last week, the general counsel's memo did focus on proprietary and trade secret information with temporal limitations. So I think she left the door open for that to suggest you can have some confidentiality. I believe it's more appropriately characterized as non-disclosure expectations. But um, I think there's a, a, a more, to, more to be determined as it relates to how the 
term confidentiality beyond the scope of severance agreements and the financial terms may go into other contexts of settlement agreements outside of ULP charges, as well as settlement agreements that are within the jurisdiction of the board because of a pending unfair labor practice charge. So let me ask you a few questions about this uh, this general counsel memo. It's, again, it's 2305. I think that's the, the number you said. Did it say anything about retroactive effect? Of, it did. Uh, it did. And, and I think that that was actually one of the helpful developments a month after the McLaren decision issued when the general counsel's office provided its memorandum of last week. It did clarify the issue on retroactivity. And what she, the general counsel, basically provided is that board cases are presumed to be retroactive. And through her interpretation of those prior board decisions, she believes this decision has retroactive application. Now, interestingly, this case has a fact pattern that all employers who utilize these types of agreements will face. And the one thing we haven't talked about yet, but that was, I think, very alarming for the board to hold, and it was the proffer of the agreement itself is where an unfair labor practice could occur. So for example, the employer's provision of the severance agreement with the offensive terms is where the ULP lies. And the reason why that's relevant for the retroactivity discussion is because the proffer happens on a date certain. And when that occurs, the NLRA has a six-month statute of limitations under Section 10B, where the ULP, happening on a date, as I said, when the proffer of the agreement may have occurred, the charging party who takes issue with the action needs to bring that action before the NLRB within six months. Some of our labor practitioners that we work with and that are um, out in general public opining on this thought, well, maybe that's where the retroactivity exposure lies, where at least the statute of limitations period will run six months after the agreement uh, had been proffered. And what the general counsel's memo provided is clarity on that to suggest, well, maybe not so quickly to, I guess, say statute of limitations is going to be an affirmative defense. In fact, what she provided is whenever that agreement is expected to be enforced. So for example, if there are confidentiality and non-disparagement terms in a severance agreement that may have been proffered greater than six months ago, but the company's expectation is for that former employee to continue honoring those, that continues to recycle and re kind of um, reset the statute of limitations period under a continuing violation type of principle, meaning that any time that the employee is somehow restricted in exercising Section 7 rights because of those confidentiality or non-disparagement restrictions, that there is going to be grounds to bring a ULP and that the general counsel has directed the regions to allow those ULP unfair labor practice charges to proceed. So I think you may have answered a couple of my next questions, but I want to just make sure I have my my thoughts clear. One is the issue of confidentiality. What can you have? Obviously, we, we lost the ability to have a lot of the language we normally have, but two things in particular. One is the financial terms of the agreement. Did she say anything about that? So actually, what I would like to do is maybe hit on the easy ones, and then we'll talk about that very difficult one. So the easy ones are these. What we know are these, is that a broad blanket approach to confidentiality of a severance agreement is going to be overbroad and an unfair labor practice for purposes of NRA. 
I think what the general counsel also was able to provide employers clarity on is that some type of non-disclosure expectation as it relates to proprietary and trade secret information for a limited temporal period is also likely going to pass NLRB scrutiny. The question about financial term uh, confidentiality is really, I think, the one we are all struggling the most with. And it's because she made reference to an operating memo from 2006. So nearly 20 years ago, the memo's uh, number is 0727. And for labor practitioners, they were aware of this operating memo because when we were in the process of handling ULP charges on behalf of clients, and if we were in the space of trying to resolve a matter once the ULPs have been filed with the regional offices, we were able to rely on 0727 to essentially obtain provisions that the employers that we represent needed to proceed and resolve. And those were financial term confidentiality, as well as one I will say, which is a waiver of reinstatement or a no rehire provision. We won't spend time, I know, on this podcast on no rehire, but in future ones we might. As it relates to financial term confidentiality, what the general counsel's memo from last week, 2305, provided is that 0727 is still in full force and effect. Now, the question becomes, what does that mean as it relates to McLaren? How do we harmonize 0727 with 2305 and McLaren? My thought is this. I think the general counsel's office was writing the memo for the audience that she intended, and that are, of course, the regional offices and the board agents that report to the regional directors who report to her. And the 0727 memo does focus on matters pending already before the NLRB. She said that's in full force and effect, and she did include a footnote, footnote nine, which I think will live in infamy until there's clarity on this, where I'm going to actually read it, Tom, only because I think it does give us more clarity on this. And that is, McLaren-McComb allows for narrowly tailored provisions, and this is the general counsel's words, and I believe that approving a withdrawal request when a non-board settlement has a confidentiality clause only with regard to non-disclosure of the financial terms comports with the board's decision, would not typically interfere with the exercise of Section 7 rights, and promotes quick resolution of labor disputes. Now, I wanted to read that because there's two key points in that footnote that I believe the general counsel was trying to emphasize. The first of which was the withdrawal request. By having a withdrawal request, the assumption is that there's already a charge again pending before the NLRB. The second issue that I believe she tried to emphasize there was the quick resolution of labor disputes, not employment disputes, not disputes over wage and hour issues, discrimination, harassment, retaliation, but labor disputes. And I feel that she was very artful in the words she chose. Um, again, it's unsettled is what I will say, whether or not this goes beyond the non-board settlement process when there's a ULP charge pending. But what I will say is this, what we know is if there is a ULP charge pending, the parties involved with that charge try to enter into and begin robust discussions on resolution outside of the NLRB's context, which is what a non-board settlement is. And if they include financial term confidentiality and only financial term confidentiality, what we know is that at least from this general counsel's memo, the regions will not refuse to grant that withdrawal request or prevent the resolution from occurring as long as that financial term confidentiality is narrowly tailored to that agreement. 
just to summarize, I mean, I think our guidance memo opened the door to the issue of financial term confidentiality. It's not as open and shut or as clear as some people might think. And it's ultimately just kind of a risk tolerance analysis. Uh, But certainly we hope we'll see additional guidance there. Tom, tell us last thing, is there any guidance on how we can draft, I don't like the term non-disparagement, but do you have ideas on how we can draft uh, those kind of concepts? Yeah, I think non-disparagement is actually the provision that has the greatest chance of employer compliance, where there actually is pretty sound guidance from prior decisions at the NLRB, as well as a general counsel's memo that provided language that gives employers, again, peace of mind knowing that if they proceed with this language I'm about to explain, that they will not have NLRB scrutiny and potential ULP charges coming out of the language that they incorporate into these types of agreements. Um, That language is this, non-disparagement, the word disparagement is an issue. The NLRB views the word choices that are included in these agreements through the reasonable employee lens. And if an employee, reasonable employee, and remember this is a non-supervisory, non-managerial employee, may be confused of what the intent is, I think this general counsel's office and this NLRB likely will find it to be too broad and should be more narrowly drafted. So we know the word disparage is gonna be a problem. The other word that I feel is going to be a problem, and this is based upon the general counsel's memo as well as our own experiences at the regional offices, is the word defamation. And even though lawyers know that defamation is a legal term, the NLRB wants us through the employer context to have more clarity for the uh, reasonable employee out there to understand what we're really getting at. So the real language that they are focused on, and I believe that we can continue to include, is language that prevents employees from making maliciously untrue statements or statements that the employee knows are false or that are made with reckless disregard for the truth or falsity of the statement. So again, the focus there is really on the definition of defamation, but not relying solely on the word defamation in the agreement so that employees may be confused about what that means. Because again, there's a legal context for defamation, but I think there's also more of a general kind of public consumption context and the, that more broadly used explanation for defamation could commingle with non-disparagement. And I believe that's where the NLRB takes issue. Okay. Last thing, Tom, 30 seconds. What about savings clauses? Do we get any comfort level that those can be helpful? So what the general counsel provided last week is that savings clauses may be useful to resolve ambiguity over vague terms. She, through the memo, does not believe they would cure overbroad provisions. And the reason why is that employers cannot make mixed messages or should not try to make mixed messages or rely on mixed messages to cure inherently overbroad provisions in agreements or letters or other communications with their employee population. She did provide some guidance on what she had asked the board about in the Stericycle brief that she provided. I know we're going to talk more about Stericycle once that case issues. And there's going to be a lot to discuss, but the provisions that she provided, and I'll put air quotes around this, the savings clause that she sought in the Stericycle brief, that is not the type of savings clause that most labor practitioners from the employer side uh, contemplate. It is extremely broad. It's more in the spirit of an employee 
Wright's notice that the NLRB had been seeking through other channels years and years and years ago. So lots of folks want to take comfort in those savings clauses, at least for this general counsel. And she's not the, the, the end all, but certainly for this general counsel, those are not likely going to be successful. Hey, Tom, thanks so much for your insights. Uh, I know we're going to be talking about this case more. And in fact, you know, for any of you who are looking for something to do in May, we've got the Ogletree Workplace Strategies uh, Seminar May uh, 10th through 13th in California. And we're going to be talking a lot about labor issues. And in fact, the general counsel is going to be there and speaking. And I'm guessing we'll ask her some questions about McLaren McComb. Uh, Join us if you find that of interest. Thanks all for listening. And we'll be back in April, I guess now with Third Thursdays, the Ogletree Deacons Labor Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.